Good morning, good afternoon, and or good evening. I never want to say just or. <laughs> is you've you've reached, you've dialed in to the William Film Project. <laughs> I am Trish Lambert, one of your co-hosts. We are still Dave List, which is not surprising. Actually, I have a feeling he's probably like passed out sleeping at this point. It's also possible, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's still being he's a new still, dad, second yeah, time around. Like just yeah. just outside a month into uh, into yeah. the whole having yeah. multiple children world. Yeah. So yeah, but he'll be back. He will be back. He he will return. Yes. So that was Corey Olson, our primary host of this evening, and I'm going to turn it over to you because we have a lot to go through tonight. We do, we do. Tonight we're trying to, uh, this is our, the goal is for this to be our penultimate script discussion. We're going to uh, try to get through episode 11 uh, tonight. Uh, so we're going to get through, so tonight we shall be discussing such uh, things as the visions of Finrod and Turgon, uh, and also uh, up through the engagement of uh, Celeborn and Galadriel. So, um, uh, so uh, I'm looking looking forward to that. So first, quick announcements. Um, we have come to the end, having had Baymoot a couple weeks back. Um, we have come to the end of the regional moot season for 2019, but we're already looking forward uh, to our spring regional moot season at Signum. Our first moot of 2020 is going to be in Texmoot. Uh, Texmoot on February February eighth, Saturday, February eighth, um, down in Houston, and this, of course, is going to be especially exciting. I am particularly excited for Texmoot uh, because I can't wait uh, to hear our celebrity keynote speaker. <laughs> is the primary reason I am excited about Texmoot because, of course, our celebrity keynote speaker is none other than our own Trish Lambert. So uh, that is going to no be pressure, so no awesome. Pressure. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> It's going to be great. Um, the call for uh, for papers, uh, you know, any proposals for presentations and stuff is up now uh, at textmoot.org. Um, and you can get to it also from signumuniversity.org slash event. Uh, so if you want to consider submitting a paper uh, to Textmoot, uh, now is the time to do that. There's still plenty of time to do that. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so we're getting ready. We'll be opening registration soon uh, for Textmoot. Um and actually, it's going to be really kind of fun because Textmoot will be uh, the first. We're, we're having, we're going to be using an entirely new registration system, uh, a custom r- registration system that was made for Signum, uh, which I'm really excited about. And uh, Textmoot's going to be our first, uh, our first moot using the new system. So that's going to be fun. Uh, anyway, so. That's happening. Uh, uh, the spring 2020 classes are open and open for registration now. Uh, so that's uh, certainly something ongoing. Um, and then MythMoot 7, we will also be opening uh, the registration for that sometime this month uh, here in December as well. So uh, MythMoot 7, Defying and Defining the Darkness, the dates for that are the 27th through the 30th of June 2020 uh, back in Leesburg, Virginia again. So uh, lots of fun events coming up. We've got some Signum Symposia uh, that are going to be happening soon. We've got a uh, a fun symposium that is going to be held, uh, co-hosted uh, by one of our Signum faculty, Gabriel Schenk, uh, and our uh, our resident storyteller, uh, Kay Ben Abraham, who are going to be hosting a uh, a a ghost stories on the winter solstice uh, 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 session, which is going to be a lot of fun. Um, so anyway, so we got a bunch of things going on. SignumUniversity.org/event is the place to go uh, to uh, get the lowdown on all those things. So, 
On we go once again to just uh, give you the instructions here, as you can see on your screen, about how to get to our how to get to the scripts to read them for yourself, um, which I strongly recommend recommend that you do. So before we move on, I want to spend uh, uh, the vast majority of our time tonight talking about episodes 10 and 11. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about 9 last time. We had a, a good old debate and discussion about episode 9. Um, there are, well, okay, sort of one thing, kind of two things that I wanted to just kind of address, though, at the beginning. Um, Rihanna and I know that, you know, as you've been writing the scripts and stuff, you have really wanted to have Sauron at the Dagor Aglareb. Uh, and in particular, I know that you are very attached to the idea of Sauron personally killing Ethelos. We, you know, we agreed that Ethelos can die in Angrod's stead there, uh, uh, in, uh, uh, in the battle, because again, you know, it, I certainly feel it's a, it's a very significant moment, uh, in the overall story of, of season four and the way that it's been, uh, that it has unfolded. And I think that that's a really good, uh, moment. Um, I really don't want Sauron to be there. Um, I I can see the benefits of that for the sake of the story of Ethelos herself. The story of Sauron and Ethelos and Sauron's torment of Ethelos. Um, you know, that story back in... I'm forgetting which episode it was now. Four or five. Um, uh, with uh, his deception of her in Angband. Um, it was a really powerful story. And his relation... Like, you know, the, the relationship between Sauron and his prisoners um, has been a really interesting sub-theme of this whole season. Um, so I can understand on that level the attraction of having Sauron there so that that loop can be closed um, when she dies at the end. Uh, I mean, at the end of her story there, at the end of the Dagor Aglareb. Um, but I th it is my very strong opinion that the benefit of that is purchased at far too high a cost overall for Sauron's character. Sauron is the one character with whom we have to play the long game longer than almost anyone else. I mean, the two longest running characters in the entire film film project are going to be Sauron and Galadriel basically. I mean, there's no other two characters that are going to run through almost the whole thing. Sauron has the advantage because he was in season one, right? And, and Galadriel wasn't. Um, but, uh, and she didn't play a huge role in season two, but still, um, from here on out, the two of them are going to be our longest running characters. And we have to, we have to shepherd them. You know, we have to, we have to husband them very carefully and, um, and thinking about their overall stories and, to me, it is it compromises Sauron too much to have him at the battle. It it doesn't fit with his character as we've developed it over the last few seasons. How he wages war, the kind of strategist he is. I don't want him responsible for the Dagor Aglareb. And what's more, um, I don't want him even in combat with anybody until he's in combat with Huon and Luthien. I, we I, we cannot risk undermining the significance of Huon and Luthien. Um, and I really want that to be, uh, again, I just, I, I want to be really careful about that. Um, and I think that Sauron fighting and losing a battle 
makes it look like him losing is no big deal. Like it, it's a common thing. Um, and I don't want that to be. I want the I, it, Luthien defeating Sauron has to look and feel like the upset of the century. Uh, and of course, century is perhaps not the right word to use when we're talking about film film stuff. Um, the millennium, you know, the age, it, it has to be a really, really big deal. So, so the so the two things I want to say about episode nine first is just simply I really I, I Sauron can't be there we can't have Sauron there Elwas needs to be killed and she should be killed by a Balrog I mean that's who's going to be there the Balrogs are going to be the ones who are in charge of the battle um, that's what makes sense that works really well um, and it makes sense with the character of the Balrogs that we've introduced already. So here's my question then. The second thing that I wanted to say about episode nine is I don't want to I don't want to just completely drop the story of Ethelos uh, and Sauron. I do not think that in order to give closure to that story, we have to have I, I can understand the appeal of having her killed by Sauron. I don't think that that is requisite for having some closure to that story. So I am interested slash willing uh, to uh, kind of discuss ways in which, you know, I'd be interested to hear Rhiannon from you as well, you know, uh, Nick and Marie from you or, or Trish, any ideas that you guys had about how some closure could be brought? How can we make sure that we are really closing the circle on the Evelos Angrod, Sauron story? Um, uh, from both sides, both from Evelos's side and from Sauron's side as well, um, without having him there in the battle, um, uh, you know, against which I am, uh, strongly opposed or to which I am strongly opposed. Um, thoughts about the closure of that, of that, uh, plot thread? Well, in the new episode nine script that, uh, we sent him this week, he isn't actually in the battle. He's there at the very end when the elves are celebrating in front of Angband, and he just comes out and kills her. So he's not technically fighting in the battle. He's sort of like just attacking her for the sake of attacking her. Now, it would be possible for him to basically the script to play out as it did, and then him to just uh, say, Thurwethel, go kill Ethelos, or... Random cat go kill Athelos or order her death in some way. Right. But right. just given that he's there and he, we've shown him as a very, very personally involved character, like he goes to the Marathadathad because he wants to be there. Right. He pretends to right. be Athelos's husband for days and days just because he wants to be there and he wants to be personally involved. So I thought it would just make sense for him to want to be the one to finish it. Um,. All right, if I could just weigh in sure. here real quick yeah. on this. I, I I gotta be honest, I'm not really crazy about throwing that into the denouement because I feel like it's gonna feel a little anticlimactic there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, I'm not sure that I agree that Sauron is particularly motivated to kill Adelos. That was the question I was gonna at, ask. At, in, in, like, it, I just don't, I don't see that based on the Sauron that we've created through the past four seasons. Yeah. Um, I would say that if we wanted to, um, to maintain the through line of Sauron's involvement, that having Gothmog 
address that specifically while he's while he's killing her because he's killing her specifically because of her relationship with Sauron because he knows it'll bug him um because I think it would bug him to throw away a perfectly usable tool um because it just seems so wasteful right right I I, I think Maybe, that that but... would tie, would tie up that situation that situation perfectly well and the battle could basically go the way it is in the outline I think that there's three characters that we get to consider the viewpoints of. Mm-hmm. Um, it's either Sauron, Edelas, or Angrod who we're seeing this play out. And I don't want the focus to be on Sauron's viewpoint in that mm-hmm. triangle. I, um, I think it's either Edelas or Angrod who we should be focused on. Right. For if it's Edelas, then I think that her despair at realizing she's become a pawn that she can be used by the enemy, that she has no control of her life. I, I think that would need to be what comes out in her death scene in some form, whether it's that it has driven her to seek death or whether she will do anything she can to fight Morgoth in this brief moment of clarity. Like, whatever whatever we do with that, I feel like that would be her viewpoint. For Angrod, it seems clear that he's been so mad at these Kinslayer elves who have been guilty of doing horrible things. And now his own wife through no fault of her own has fallen into that category. Right. And is feeling guilty and torn up over it. So now he has to reconcile the idea of, well, of course I want to help her and uh, do anything I can for her and forgive her. Obviously it's not her fault with all the rhetoric he said, to this point about kinslaying. So I think it's, it requires him to take a step in the direction of more nuanced right. approach to his, right. well, of course the Feynorns are totally guilty for their own choices and it's a totally different thing. Right. It, it's a, it's a character moment for him. So like, those are the things that are going on. And I just, I think that we can tell those stories without Sauron because it's an elder space story. Yep. Yeah. No, I, so I do agree with you that, Angrod's perspective on that is, in this way, it's the most complex and interesting, especially since in episodes 10 and 11, it becomes immediately relevant, right? I mean, Angrod's relationship with the Feanorians is complicated by the death of Ethelos, by the betrayal of Ethelos, right? And him seeing what happened to her. And as you say, it it's not like he's not going to think their situations are the same, and it's not like... But it does... Um, it, it does change things for him. And I think that that, uh, so of those three perspectives, Murray, that you were laying out, his is definitely, I think the most interesting. Um, and in a sense, the most enduring, um, in that it, in this, for the sake of this season, Evelos to Sauron is, she's not a huge deal. She's like one pawn of many that he has. Right. And like, yeah, he, you know, would enjoy being cruel to her for the sake of being cruel, uh, I guess. Um, but I mean, is he even there yet though? I'm not even sure he is, but, um, but it does seem to me, Nick, I, I agree with you. Boy, I'm doing that a lot lately. It's getting to be a bad habit. Um, I, <laughs> anyway, uh, Nick, I agree with you that he is, his first impulse, it seems to me, would be to try to recoup Edelos, right? Or try to reuse her. Or if he's going to come out personally and interact with her, it wouldn't be to kill her, it would seem to me. It would be to, like, you know, 
readjust the whammy. Like he, he he's got to like he wants to like get her back as an asset. She was a useful asset and could still be a useful asset, but there clearly something's gone a little bit wrong in her programming, right? Um, because she did snap out of it briefly, uh, and maybe he will have or you know heard of that. You know he will have uh, seen that in some way. Um, so yeah, just to, to I mean, the only way in which the only reason I can think of for Sauron to want to kill Edelos would be uh, if he feels that she's a liability for some reason now. Um, um, but it's well, a little... and I think she would be in this situation because in the script that I've written, what she does is she reveals it to Angon and Idmor now. And they say that after the battle, they're going to try to find a cure for her. So what that would entail would be telling the other lords of the Noldor, like going to Finrod and say, hey, Finrod, can you please help Ethelos? There's something wrong with her. And so it would come out that they've been using these secret spies and things to do this. If Sauron just comes out and kills her, or if he gets someone else to kill her before the battle has ended before they go and tell other people and seek the cure. They're not going to say anything about her being a spy and her killing the messenger because they don't want that to come out to tarnish her memory. So she is a liability because she would be revealing the spell of bottomless dread thing to people other than Angwin and Agnor if she were to stay alive. Sounds like they're the liability though. Well, I mean, I can... I can, I mean, I can see that. I can see the justification for that. But here's another, here's another issue. I mean, again, kind of coming back, Marie, to what you were saying. Um, we don't want to spend a lot of time in this episode on Sauron's perspective. And we'd have to get fairly deep into Sauron's perspective to make much, like, that's, it's pretty complicated, right? You know, the way in which she could become a liability and his decision to, to you know, kill her to prevent her from, uh, from for that from happening. What if, what if instead of going into that in this episode... We have a conversation between Angrod and Agnor in another episode, like episode 10 or even later on, where they do discuss Sauron and, like, what his motivations for killing Ethelus might be. Like, it would involve changing some of the reconciliation and stuff like that, but they could explore Sauron's motivations more if you don't think that what I've done with Sauron's motivations in episode 9 is enough to convey it. Well, I just... See, I get, but another part of it is, um, again, darn, man, in like five minutes, agreeing with Nick a second time, um, about it feeling a little <laughs> anticlimactic to just have her, like, I would rather her, I would much rather have Evelas die in a blaze of glory during the battle than just have her quietly snuffed out after the battle is over. Well, um, I think that having it after the battle is over makes it even more impactful because in the battle, people are dying all over the place. And then the way I've written that script, you sort of get that false hope. Like if you don't go into the script knowing that Ethelos is going to die somehow, you would see them winning the battle, these 
Balrogs being present and they've killed Feyn or they know that these are like the worst demons that Morgoth can throw at them because they haven't seen Lauron yet. So the fact that so many people actually survived this battle and it was a victory for the Noldor is a shock to everyone. And so they're celebrating, they're happy. So you get this uplifting moment where it seems like everything is going well and then Ethos gets killed. And it's not its not that s- simple structure of you have the climax and then the resolution. It's you have the climax, and the climax is the battle. That's when the Balrogs are about to stab Ordreth. That's when the Balrogs are about to kill Fingolfin and Fingon. And so that's the climax. That should be the most exciting point of the episode, but the most emotionally impactful event of the episode would be the death of Ethelos. But I'm not sure that leaving us with like that kind of a, you know, well, not a bad taste in our mouth with like having the final note of the battle be loss and sorrow is necessarily the note that we want for the glorious, you know, for the Dagor Aglareb. Um, This should be a resounding victory because here's the other thing. If If Ethelos dies in battle... While lucid, right, having thrown off the spell of bottomless dread, which, like, you're not supposed to be able to do, right, that is a triumph. Like, her death itself is part of the triumph. Like, it's a different kind of triumph. It's a different flavor of triumph. Um, she dies well, and that is more than we really should have expected from her after the spell of bottomless dread is put on her, after she's done what she's done, seeing her being the active, um, uh, not even dupe, but pawn uh, of Morgoth in... Unwitting Mole. Yeah, Unwitting Mole. I mean, like, for her dying a good death seems counterindicated counterindicated at that point. Her dying a glorious death in battle in which she can accomplish something. She can be instrumental in... I mean, I still... And by the way, I'm still not forgetting the fact I don't want to break the Balrog rule, right? If Ethelos is not going to get killed by a Balrog, somebody else has to be. Um, So remember, like, I spared Angrod because we were killing off Ethelos. So, like, that's... it's. uh, I'm I'm going to put Angrod back on the chopping block if we can't... Somebody's got to die. And and you know, and you said lots of people are dying on the battlefield, but lots of red shirts are dying on the battlefield. We right. don't, you know, we don't have any real loss um, other than you know a body count, which does you know. And I'm not and sad music, and, yeah, and sad music, which I mean, there's value to that, but I'm not saying it's nothing. It's not the same, but it's not the same. And and it seems to me that all of these things can be very efficiently combined into one thing. That is Ethelos's personal victory. She can end by succeeding in throwing off, the, and she can die on her own terms, doing good. Well, she can die well. That's, that's what I have her doing in the new episode. Is she throws off the spell of bottomless dread just the moment before she runs the rest of the way to Sauron. Because what I have her doing is she's sort of like puppet and being controlled to run to him at the first moment, and she gets halfway there, and like the visual shift and she has thrown off the spell and she's hearing Angrod's real voice instead of Morgoth's voice and she pauses for a moment and she can choose. She can either go back to her husband and 
uh, Ignor, or she can continue running towards Sauron. And then at that moment, she draws her sword and charges to Sauron with the intent to fight and hopefully kill him, which right. doesn't work out that well. She doesn't really have any effect on him. And that's another thing I was trying to do with that, is because I was considering the fact that Sauron will be defeated by Luthien and Huon. So we want to show that Sauron is a good fighter. We want to show that he's not just the guy who avoids the battle all the time because he isn't that great at physical combat. Which we've done okay, for we're, we're, we're capturing Mithros. Time out here. <laughs> second second executive producer coming in here. I agree. I, I don't want Sauron at the battle. And I agree with Marie, which actually is not as weird me agreeing with Maria as Corey agreed with Nick. <laughs> this is an elf story and yeah. we do have a lot more Sauron story to go. I don't I just I'm not in I'm not in favor yeah. <laughs> of Sauron being there. I just it's it's too it, there's too many other things going on. And as somebody said, I think Nick may have said or Corey said, you know, there's too much backstory we'd have to fill in to yeah. to do this. I, I just don't see it. I think his time has not yet come. Right. The Luthien story and what leads up to that—that's it, and and that's where we need to be putting our energy with Sauron, I think. And it's not like we haven't given Sauron front row seats at fights <laughs> in the series. We definitely have. So yes. Sauron single-handedly captured Midas and slew his entire army. So there's that. There's that. And there's threw that. off the threw off the spiders that that were attacking him and throwing Wethel. Yeah. So there yeah. needs to be with Sauron, I think um, it, I think the issue uh, is that um, both the kind of strategist commander, the kind of role we've had him playing is not a, a, a primarily a combat role. But more importantly, it's not just about showing his prowess in combat. It's about giving him a different kind of mystique. Right. He's not a bruiser. He's not just a bruiser. Yes, he should be able to uh, handle himself. But that doesn't mean I don't even like does he use weapons like I suppose he he, he will use weapons eventually. But um, he doesn't against Luthien. Right. I mean, you know, that's and he doesn't against Finrod. Um, that's not like his battle with Finrod. That's Sauron's kind of battle. Right. Um when Sauron steps out onto the battlefield, it should not be like, oh, here comes the boss fighter, right? It's like, it is a completely different kind of conflict. <laughs> and I think that was managed well, uh, Marie, as you said, with, with Mithras, right? He doesn't come out like, whoosh, whoosh, you know, whirling swords and like defeat Mithras in one-on-one -on -one combat necessarily, right? Um, he outmaneuvers Mithras and his like presence is felt. Um, anyway, yeah, I mean, think about it. You know, eventually the guy, when he makes his ultimate weapon, it's a ring. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's sword. how he thinks. It's, yes, that's, that's right. how he thinks. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, so, yeah. Uh, then, then he, doesn't, he doesn't have to physically kill Ethelus by choking her to death like I have him doing. He could kill her in some other way. I don't. I don't think he's there. I, and and again, there, I yeah. think he, she needs to die on the battlefield. Her dying on the battlefield accomplishes a bunch of different things. Her dying later on doesn't accomplish nearly so many things. And first of all, one of the things that it accomplishes is having her, somebody killed by the Balrogs. But secondly, <laughs> um, it, uh, it, 
it, it also puts her in a position where she can accomplish something with her death, even though you had her making the you know, ending on that kind of a positive note by making the choice and throwing off uh, the spell and rebelling against Sauron and, and, and Morgoth. She didn't accomplish anything. She died and, you know, died in her right mind and on her own terms, which is good. Um, but better is for her to die. Let her save somebody. Let the Balrogs be about to kill somebody else and have her fight yeah. off the Balrogs. One of the things that I... So... We haven't seen a Balrog in distress yet, right? The Balrogs have never done anything other... I mean, they've withdrawn from battles before, but we've never seen a Balrog, like, about to get killed, right? Or look no, like no, it might get not. killed, right? And I, honestly, I, I, th- I think we need to kind of plant that seed, that the Balrogs are killable, right? Like, it is theoretically possible for one of the Noldor to defeat them because the day's going to come when we're going to want to kill two of them in a day, right? By two different right. Noldor, uh, you know, in Gondolin. So, I got it. Uh, so, so the, the part of the new script where Orodreth is in danger from Balrogs would be a perfect opportunity absolutely. for Edelas to try to save him. And I realized that to save him. logistically she's not necessarily right there the way it's written now, but we can logistically move her around a little bit. That's what I'm and, thinking. Or, or... Or, what if, because the reason why Engrod's back there is presumably because um, Agnor is spelling him at the, like, very front lines. So, they're, like, they're, I don't know, maybe a 100 feet back from the, the actual line of battle. And what if Agnor it winds up face-to-face with Gothmog, and that's how he gets his sword broken, and... Edelas at least gets Gothmog off of him. Yeah, I mean, I would be totally cool with having Edelas now in her right mind actually beating back a Balrog, forcing a Balrog to retreat and defend his life, right? Mm -hmm. She wouldn't kill him. She might even wound him. um, But she would, like, basically to show... like, Especially if she kind of cold cocks him. Right. I mean, she comes out of nowhere and she, so have him to show her forcing Gothmog or whatever Balrog is present uh, to like fight defensively. And, and then he ends up killing her, right? She does die. Um, But she, she say, she, she hints at the mortality of the Balrogs, right? Shows that Balrog versus Noldor is not necessarily, in all situations, a completely one-sided fight. Um, uh, so that's, I think, a good idea, a good thing for us to plant uh, in our viewers' minds. Um, but she, but she dies, right? So we don't yet have any precedent of a Balrog losing a fight, um, but we show him struggling in a fight. Um, so that accomplishes something for the Balrogs. It has her death save somebody's life. So that um, then complicates the story of of that person moving, whether it's Oradreth or or whether it's Ignor. Um, in either case, I think uh, it it can that can really work uh, moving forward. Um, whether we think of that in terms of Oradreth's own perspective and his memories of his mother's death and his mother's sacrifice and how that impacts his story, whether it's Ignor. Um, I actually, I think in some ways I prefer it to be Ignor because Nick, as you say, we can dovetail it with a broken sword moment. Right. But also remember that 
Ignor is going to be a major romantic lead in season five, and the primary. Well, how will he be a romantic lead? Because like, Andreth won't be alive that long. So like you say, major romantic lead, and then like for like three episodes. Well, that's that's a season five question. It's a season five question, but in any case, yeah. it's going to be a major. It's it, it's going to be a significant story. For mm-hmm. uh, you know, for however long it is, it's going to be a significant story. Are you worried that we might mess up his face? <laughs> no. What I'm thinking <laughs> is that we um, remember his reason, like the reason he does not uh, like reciprocate. He does reciprocate Andreth's feelings, but the reason he will not like engage in a relationship with her is that he's dedicated to the war, right? It's time of war and he won't do it. Um, and Ethelos's death, like you guys set up in, you know, talked about the fact that Angrod and, and, and Ignor are now as focused on Sauron or on Morgoth as the Feanorians are, right? They're like now the only one, the only others of the, of the, of, of the Noldor who are operating on the same wavelength as the Feanorians now. Um, and Ethelos's death in battle saving Ignor's life works for both of them in that way, right? I mean, Angrod is his wife, right? Um, and she was killed and he's ticked off. Uh, and not to mention conflicted in all the other ways that we were talking about before. And um, Ignor, of course, was the one who was saved by her. And so his, you know, his desire to, um, you know, he would feel like he has it responsibility, right? I mean, it's like he'd be like failing the memory of, of Edelos if, uh, you know, he turns away from the battle and, you know, settles down and gets quietly married instead of, you know, being on the front lines. Um, anyway, so I, I, I think that, that could be made to work in either way. Well, I think I'm trying to set that up any way that Edelos is killed. Like, there's that whole discussion in episode 10, where they're talking about how they want Ordreth to stay with Finrod because he has his wife. And Engrad says that like he won't see Ethelos ever again, except he might see some memory of her face in the faces of Ordreth's children. So like they're trying to get Ordreth to stay off of Dothronian and out of danger so that he can raise a family and have children with his wife, mm-hmm. sort of in the memory of Ethelos. So I think that having a story like that would work either way. Right, right. Yep, that's true. That's true. Um, so if we, are, if we are going to have Ethelos killed by a Balrog in battle, what should we do about the like plotline I've had with the naming of Sauron and the forging of Narsil? Because like I, I did a lot of stuff with that. Like We have Sauron exactly. named in one episode and Narsil forged in the next episode talking about how it's a broken sword and like Helcarp makes it with her special dwarf curse to kill Sauron. And then we also have the talk about Estelle in that episode. Yes. Which, which I like. Is a um, to the frame yeah. well, of season we, one. I, so first of all, most of that stuff I think is fine as it is. Cause remember her death is in some ways less important than the fact that Angrod knows she was like suborned by Sauron. Like he knows how she well, was he manipulated. He knows doesn't how she know that unless she's going to tell him in the battlefield and there is this guy and his name was Sauron. But and does, he did this. No, but doesn't he find out? 
Hang on, but there's there are ways that we can we can. I mean, that doesn't seem hard, right? Um, he finds out about her kinslaying, right? He finds out that she has been manipulated. Like he learns the truth of that, right? Um. Yes, it's it's assumed to be Morgoth because it is Morgoth. Yes. Um. So the the detail that. Angrod doesn't know, but the audience does, is that Sauron impersonated Angrod to get truths out of Edelas. So that, that's need, the thing. Do, yeah, and it's hard to just tell the audience something they already know. Right. Um, yeah, like, Edelas isn't going to say there was this guy named Sauron who impersonated you, and I really, really hate him, so and you should hate that guy can, more than can, you hate the battle that kills me. Can we give him some time off, like, off screen where, like, we... Like, Will there be, could there be some respite in the battle after she's like, when she's having her lucid moment, right? Is there a way that they we can have them? I don't know what, like, is, behind the front lines, binding a wound like... or something like that, and then like, because yeah, because Marie is right. We don't need to explain all this stuff again. We don't need to go through all this stuff on screen. You know, we don't need to recap everything on screen. But is it possible to like? put them somewhere for just a brief time while she's binding his wound or something like that. Um, when it we can, absolutely would be. While she's actively wouldn't, resisting the spell of bottomless dread. It How long wouldn't is she resisting? as dramatic or as awesome on screen as seeing Sauron shift his face to Angrod's face in front of Angrod while why killing would he do that? Life. Why would Sauron give, give away his methods? Like, I mean, to taunt him, but he, right. he has to have a reason to do that. Like, Sauron doesn't, yeah. isn't just mean for no reason. Like, he would do that to manipulate Angrod in a particular way, but what way? Right. And what's his point? And, and when they haven't landed the vast majority of their spies yes. amongst the Noldor, it doesn't benefit them to reveal to the Noldor, no. hey, we could be anybody we want. Yeah, he wouldn't want no them. Reason to Sauron do. would be the last one who would want everybody to know about this. So... Is there a way? So I, I'm thinking back to Oladrith and Celebrimbor, right? Yeah, name dropping Sauron isn't difficult. Name uh, the Balrogs call him Sauron, um, and That's yeah, any other. Well, and therefore any other captives from Angbandir as well. So Sauron's name will come out eventually among the elves, right? And yeah, name dropping Sauron, as you say, isn't difficult. Um, right. Having them, well, let's just pause for a second. What do they know? What do the elves know of Sauron? Of Sauron's the Fëanorians know a lot about. Him. They've interacted with him personally, right? Um, My so there's him. that, right? Uh, but the host of Fingolfin has only interacted with him as a spy, where they didn't recognize right. him. Right. Is there any reason? Is there any way that they could get? information about oh yeah oakwig on twitch is saying they can call him thu oh i'm getting around to that we're like it's going to be a season five plot line the story, mm-hmm. the name thu is going to happen like that's going to happen I'm in. um uh yeah yeah I- I don't think that there's a way for us to like back channel the information of who Sauron is exactly to the elves between here and when Narsil is made. And I, I'm not sure that we have to make Narsil like a specifically anti-Sauron 
sword. It's kind of like, cool, especially considering but... that Sauron's going to break it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it, it's kind of cool as set up for the Battle of the Last Alliance, but um, you know, in the, but, but, which, the ring by the way, later. will be fought by Ethelos's grandson. Right. right. So, so, like, her, her death by Sauron, if it inspires the Forge of Versil, is absolutely achieving something. It's just achieving something that we won't see for a while, something that we'll have to play the long game on. Not she, for a she while. Yeah. of the sword that will kill Sauron. Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, if for that's, that's a, a long really enough game that even... Gil-Galad would have to be wielding it, like, it's... Yeah, and Gilgala doesn't even know Ethelos because he's born after she dies. Right, right. So it's just—it's a—it's not that there's not a connection there. It's the connection is so tenuous that we can't make decisions that rely on it. Like if an, if, if the audience is like, "Hey, wait a minute, isn't this guy related to that guy? Isn't that cool?" That's one thing. Like, we aren't if expecting we, the normal audience to make that connection. It's the kind of little subtle thing that. If you're really a Tolkien fan and you really pay attention to the show, you would pick up on and think, well, that's really cool yeah, with how they the title of... that together and set that up so, so far ahead. It's okay to set things up, but it's not okay to make characters do things that they don't have a reason to do. And so when Maedhros commissions a sword from Telkar as a gift for Agnar, sure, it should be powerful and it should have Dorvish spells on it and it should be... Uh, designed to defeat the powers of darkness and all of that. But there's no need for Sauron to be name-dropped in there. Even though Vindros knows who Sauron is, why would he want Agnor's sword to be specifically anti-Sauron? Like, there's not a motivation there. ask it to be specifically anti-Sauron. That's, he told Telkar what happened. Yeah. And... Helcard took this initiative on her own. Like, I don't have Mythos saying to Ainur, this is your anti-Sauron sword, here you go. He well, that's said, the point. If it's not an anti-Sauron sword, so it doesn't need to be an anti-Sauron sword. It's just a sword. Right. Well, it's, and... it's an anti-Sauron sword, but it's not something they know is an anti-Sauron sword. Otherwise, they would be looking around for Sauron's okay. and looking to kill you with this anti-Sauron sword. So, all right. so yeah. Mary's <laughs> Mary's sword that he gets from the bear, uh, the bear downs is an anti um, Nazgul sword, anti Witch King of Angmar sword, essential because yeah, essential. the Witch King of Angmar, but not was... woven about right. with spells for the downfall of Angmar. That doesn't mean right. that it was designed it was, to kill the Witch was, King personally. No, it was it was made by people whose main enemy was Angmar. Yes. And they had put spells on the sword. Yes. And so when Mary uses it against the Witch King, that's really cool. Yes. But like there that there is a reason for it. Yes. Angmar was the main enemy of the entire country that forged that sword. Exactly. Telkar does not view Sauron as the main enemy. She's gonna view Morgoth, Morgoth as the main enemy here. Okay, hey, I because I, he is. <laughs> I, I have oh. an idea. I have a cunning plan. What if? She the, the specific spells she puts on it are not directed at Sauron personally. What if... Because she will have been... Um, uh, uh, Ryan and I like the idea of Telkar hearing the stories about what's been happening with the elves and that kind of informing... Um, uh, kind of, you know, informing the spells that she lays upon the sword. Um, I like that idea. But what if instead of Sauron personally... Maybe she is particularly um, 
that the fact that people had like Diriel is captured, Etherlos is captured, you know, Rogrin has just been captured. Um, that that the the fact so that something that isn't specifically naming Sauron, but would apply to him at the moment the sword is used to kill him. We'll see, sort yeah, of like what we is, did yeah, exactly. with uh, the idea, knife, where right. it's it'll break when you try to take more than what you are due, or something like that. So well, something. So my idea is Sauron. that like she, she forges, a, she lays spells upon the sword for. Like for the breaking of chains, like this is the sword for like this is like the anti-captivity sword. Like this is this like it is it is like the 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 thought that she puts into the sword is the thought of uh, all of the the prisoners who are being kept in the dominion of uh, of Morgoth, uh, and like so to break the chains to break the dominion of Morgoth over others is like what this sword is, is like the, the sort of the spirit that is infused into this sword. Because of course that will work really rather wonderfully as this sword that, you know, the, as you know, the, the shards of the sword, which cut the ring of power off of Sauron's hand. Right. Um, Absolutely. And, And it can be worded somehow where like, Ring mind control is also like falls into the category of whatever involved. Yes, involved. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, where, where... I, I love the idea of a breaker of chains concept more than a this is an anti Sauron sword. Exactly. Like, the, yeah. like so, I I think we want to imbue that that um, hope and that motivation and that desire into the spells we put on the sword yeah. more and than notice a the falls to the ring after. Narsil is broken. After Narsil is broken, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and when Aragorn is walking around with the complete Anduril on him, mm-hmm. he resists the temptation <laughs> to go for the ring. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. No, there's lots of fun recollections of this that we can uh, use during not only the Lord, the Lord of the Rings time, but during the the War of the Last Alliance time. Um, both Elendil. And so Elendil, Isildur, and Aragorn can all get a lot of mileage out of this concept, right, of the, like, breaker, breaking of chains uh, thing. And, of course, it, you, you, will, you will recognize when I'm talking about breaking of chains, I'm thinking about Sauron and Finrod. Uh, and I'm kind of, you know, my, my language here is being influenced by the, the, war, the, 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 the song battle between Finrod and, and Sauron. So I am kind of thinking in some specifically anti-Sauron ways, but, but it, it, it fits that way again. They don't need to know all the details. It is known. Right. Right, it is known that people are being taken and being dominated, and and like the the, the crude facts known. of what happened to to Etherlos are known. We don't know that Sauron did it. We don't know how Sauron did it. We don't know. Uh, they don't know anyway how all these things happened. Um, but they know that they have happened, and it's easy to, for me to imagine Telkar being moved by that. You know, being really. Um, being really taken by that. I mean, somebody who is dragged away from their homelands and kept in, in prison and forced to, 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 you know, um, serve, uh, to like, you know, twist your, um, your craft to serving the enemy. That would, that would hit home to Telkar, wouldn't it? So, yeah. okay, yeah. cool. 
um, I, I think that that helps to solve the other problem, too. All right. Well, we've already kind of oozed over into talking about some season, um, some episode 10 stuff. So let's uh, let's advance ahead and think about uh, episode 10 a little bit more, um, uh, a little bit more um, systematically here. Mm. Um, OK, yeah. Sorry. Nick, go ahead. No, 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 that's fine. Um, so basically, this is the aftermath yep. of the battle. Um, we're going to get a chance to deal with the band, which we really didn't get a chance to do because it happened right before the battle, and we were busy in the battle. Um, we're also going to be issuing it, eh, issuing. We're also going to be addressing the issue of how the Feanorians are kind of looking over across to the other side. And feeling a little bit like, are these guys really pulling their weight here? Yeah, I was interested in that element. You know, um, and how unprepared it seems like the people of Fingolfin and and Finrod's guys, brothers, um, and sister who isn't even there, you know, are being in in the whole situation. Because Mithros knew... What was happening the whole time? Yes. He didn't need a messenger because he was getting like real time updates as he was traveling. Okay, we got it. We got it. Like shift slightly south here because it looks like they're making for the uh, the Vale of Syrian. So they had to make sure yeah. that they were that they were getting there. Whereas everybody else, like, and they were faced with a a pretty basic strategic. Um, strategic move on the part of uh, of Morgoth's forces, and weren't able to do anything about it. Yeah, and so so it's we kind of find ways for the Feanorians to help them, which is of course going to help bridge the gap between these groups. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, so I really. I was really interested in that, and I think that it's a it's a a very natural character development of the Feanorians to have them asking that question, basically, like, okay, like, hey, on the one hand, we won this battle, guys, but like, seriously, you came that close to losing this battle? Like, what's wrong with you people? Had these orcs come and attacked, you know, Himring, we would have, you know, absolutely yeah, they would have toasted them. They would yeah. have been done. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this would well, not have been a well, struggle. The... The, the so the Feanorians have two major major advantages. They have cavalry, which is huge. Yeah, um, especially against orcs because it just like the the orcs have no defense against cavalry. Yeah, uh, yet, and they have at least in our adaptation they have heavy infantry. Right, um, which is something that we've set up from the very beginning. The the people of Dorthonian and the and Fingolfin's guys, like they don't have that kind of heavy infantry and that kind of training, right? To to deal the kind of damage and to hold the kind of lines that the Feanorians can. You know, the the Feanorians basically use cavalry cavalry to drive the entire orc army into the spears, the waiting spears right. of right. their heavy infantry, and it was devastating yeah and the the feanorians have been doing this kind of training and they've been wargaming since back in season two yes right whereas 
the people of Fingolfin, sure, they've been training in the use of their weapons and all that, but they haven't really put that much thought they're, they're into... They're not quite as dedicated to concept as the Feanorians right. are. They haven't put in the kind of thought into battlefield tactics and stuff mm-hmm. that the Feanorians have, and they haven't had that much battlefield experience to really draw on there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we start out basically essentially on the battlefield, right, in the aftermath. And, um, of course, Mablung and Beth- Beleg arrive <laughs> with <laughs> coffee. And dollar short, yeah, yeah. Right, um, because they did get, the you know, Finrod's messenger and talked Thingol into letting them go. But it, it's, like, it's obvious it's a half-hearted attempt. They're kind of embarrassed yes. that, like, it's like, hey, it's us and... 50 guys yeah (laughs) yeah yeah um i i actually i liked that element especially like the fact that mablung and beleg themselves are clearly a little bit embarrassed by how 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 late and half-hearted their aid is um because they have been put into a difficult on the one hand like they've come right they personally have come and uh, right. and have shown and proven that they personally want to help but at the same time their arrival has shown equally clearly that their king is not so committed to it um, well it's like it's like if you showed up to a moving job and a you relate and b you showed up with your useless brother-in-law Right, like that's basically how they feel right now. Like the right. truck, like they're putting like the rakes and stuff on the on the back of the truck. Right. Basically, this is a throwback to season three, where the dwarves arrived late. Yes. To help um, the green elves, and the elves of Doria blamed the dwarves for showing up late and the dwarves were like hey but we did like the entire mop up and we agree- we showed up at the agreed upon time the fact that you guys charged too early is not our problem <laughs> right. uh so like there was a there was a feeling there where they were the aggrieved party right and now they're in the position of showing up after the fact and going oh hey I guess this doesn't look good. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a certain pleasant comeuppance to it, which is yeah. which, which I really liked. Um, and again, Mablung in particular, you'd think, um, because yeah. he was the one who was part of the desperate defense, right? right. Um, uh, you'd think that he would feel particularly sensitive about right. being the guy showing up late. Another thing that, so in the very next scene, we have Mithros and Mablung having this conversation. I And I really like this kind of relationship that developed between them because in a different world, these two guys might have become great friends. Right. In, in Like at least in the adaptation that we've created, these two guys are very, very similar in yes. a lot of ways. Yes. And so it becomes obvious that Mablung respects him. Um. But Mablung also is like, hey, um, by the way, didn't we tell you you couldn't do this stuff that you're clearly doing? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And by the way, can I just say as a side note, like having Mablung and Maglor in the same room hurts my head so much. Like I can't even handle it. <laughs> I can't even handle it. Um, 
like those are probably the two elves whose names I like misplace verbally more often than any others. Like I, I can't and anyway. So like having them in the same room was like absolutely like messing with my head. Just well, well Maglo was there a very short amount of time. Then you went off to go get from Gotham. It looked like things were going badly. <laughs> right. Well, even even just having Mablung talking to Mithros, like Maglor usually does, <laughs> like it's just oh ah, anyway. <laughs> sorry, just a little yeah. personal problem I was having there. I, um, I have the same issue with Kelleborn and Kelegorm. Kel- yes, uh. yes, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, having conversations between Kelegorm and. Goadriel would mess with my head in the same way, I think, as having conversations <laughs> between Mablung and 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 Mithros, basically. Um, but anyway, sorry. That's just, again, that's just a side issue. Um, so, one thing that was interesting is that um, one choice that you guys made, and we talked about this a little bit, um, but uh, in the scripts, this came out much more, well, much more frequently anyway than we had talked about it, which I I didn't oppose any of it. Um, That is, I I, I wasn't finding myself resisting it as it kept coming up, was the resistance to the ban. In the book, the ban gets passed and there's some grumbling about it and Fingolfin's like, okay, we'll do it. And then it like pretty much never comes up again. I mean, it is very, mm. very rarely, the ban is very rarely mentioned at any point in the entire rest of the Silmarillion. Um, you don't get a lot of contact between the Feanorians and no. the Sindar in the book. And I think that that's that probably, because like, I just can't see the Sindar when they're at home speaking in, in Sindarin. Like there's the, no the way Feanorians, that that happens. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. No, so I mean, this I thought was was I, I thought this was a really interesting innovation, but because it, it kept happening, right? Not only was was were the um, I hadn't thought of, and again, I'm not. I'm the, I do not mean this as a criticism. I'm not objecting to this. Um, it kept coming up. In ways that were surprising to me. Like, I love the moment when, like, I, I'm, I'm forgetting the occasion. In, like, the heat of, uh, like, in some particular moment, somebody says something in Quenya and Mablung's like, hey! And he's like, oh, sorry, I, like, I hadn't rehearsed it in in, in, in Cinderin. Like, I, I, sorry, yeah, my bad, my bad. Um, well, what it was, was that's the moment when Mablung and Mythos are talking, and Amras and Maglor are walking behind them and talking and I had Amras doing this thing where he's like walking backwards while he's talking to Maglo who's not looking where he's going and he just bumps into Mythos and he's like oh I'm sorry brother I didn't see you there and Madeline freaks out because he said it in Quenya. He said it in Quenya right right yes yes exactly I mean and, but see I, I I was really interested in that moment because it's exactly the kind of thing that would happen right I mean like naturally right. they're going to say the, he's going to say that in Quenya um, yeah. and naturally Madeline would object and it and and then, of course, you guys went even further, and I'm kind of peeking into episode 11 here, um, <laughs> and actually gave, like, pushback against Thingol, um, like, from Dairon, uh, which I thought was great. Like, you know, so... Well, Dairon is a linguist, so he, he's yeah. the one who, like, would really appreciate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and by the way, I loved the line that he delivered, you know, that, like, um, what was it, like, I don't say it's unjust. I only say it is severe. <laughs> right? I really, I really like that line. Um, um, but anyway, uh, so 
I, so that it's, it's one thing and it seems to me very, very natural. You know, like, again, it's one thing for Tolkien to say like, oh, yeah, OK, so there's this ban and this is what is supposed to happen. But when you actually have to have people interacting on mm. screen, you know, and the, like when you really get down to the, you know, the, the, the kind of day by day personal interactions, the ban becomes more and more troublesome. And I think that, yeah. you know, the way that that our story is really kind of picking up on that and showing both a, a genuine intention to go along with it, but also like really demonstrating how frankly unreasonable of a, of a requirement it is by Thingol and, and uh, impossible to enforce. And um, uh, yeah, anyway, anyway, I, I just, I, I think yeah. the way it keeps coming up is interesting and I, I've really liked it. <clears throat> The um and I forget the the name of the the policy, uh, it's not springing to mind at the moment, but um, following following like the the Jacobite Jacobite rebellion and whatnot mm-hmm. in in Scotland and the the ban of kilts and tartans and right. you know and language and stuff like that that happened in Scotland that came up a number of times in our discussions about this and and like. I kept hearing Alan Breck in the uh, the Disney version of Kidnap from like the the sixties, whenever it was, saying, "And a man can be cast into jail if you have have a kilt about his legs." And <laughs> right. my Scottish accent is awful, <laughs> but um, you know, like I kept hearing that every time that we would talk about the band. Yes. Um. And then from there, let's see here. Yeah, sorry, uh, from sorry, there I'm, we. I'm, I'm, I'm ahead, slightly digressing on the subject of the ban here, um, but one question I have: one, do you guys see this coming to any resolution, or is it just going to be kind of a an aggravate? I mean, is it going to be something that's just going to become frankly irrelevant after the Dagor Bragalak, or? Um, I I think that. Over time, the Noldor will get in the habit of using Cinder in, in their day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. And Quenya will be kind of put to the side and eventually will become the book language that right. Tolkien intended it to be. Right. So that really, in the long term, Thingol wins. Because right. once everyone's speaking Cinder, and there's really no point in going back to Quenya, even though the people who speak it as their native tongue surely haven't forgotten it. Right. The issue is that once Thingol dies, like the ban doesn't mean anything anymore. Right. So Quenya is merely re- uh, becomes a backseat language through use rather than because of any enforcement. Right. 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 Yeah. But then of course you'll have stuff like Galadriel still singing in Quenya in the Lord of the Rings. Right. So right. I think it's important that we sort of keep reminding people of this. And uh, just keep it up as a thing. It doesn't need to have a big major point where it comes to a head, but it's just going to be something, just an extra detail that we keep track of as we go through the story. No, I was just wondering, there was, there was so much more tension about or uh, surrounding the band in these two episodes than I expected uh, that I was wondering if, if you guys were imagining sort of building towards some kind of, um, I don't know if crisis is the right thing or some kind of... It was more that we were expecting to differentiate the cultures based on how they handled it. So in Gondolin, where you have maybe two-thirds of the population being Sindar 
full stop, right. it's going to be obvious that the day-to-day language of how to go buy your right. bread in the market is going to be Cinderin because right. that's how that works there. Whereas with the Feanorians who have pretty much no contact with anybody and right. are very insular and talk amongst themselves, they're clearly going to continue speaking Quenya right. and they also throughout the care. first stage and don't care. Yeah. They like care. they'll speak Cinderin when they interact with outsiders. Right. So, but their day to day is going to be Quenya and that's going to continue. So it's we, also we were possible that the court language of Mithros himself might be Sindarin just to kind of like so that he so that he at least can say I, well, I conduct all my business in Cinder and I don't know what you're talking about like I don't know what to tell you he do, would I, want to you really want me to just deniability. stand over everybody and yeah. Yeah. bash them on the head every time like come right. on right but it, but it would be a very lightly enforced yes yes right. uh, habit among them where it's different and then and in Fingolfin's court clearly Fingolfin's court is going to have to be right because he's the one who said we're following the ban like he has to set a good example so like we should see the differences gradually over time it wasn't that we were expecting a crisis to come okay yeah although if something if an opportunity presents itself later perhaps yeah yeah although we we essentially have aura for still enforcing the ban yeah i I, I, and by the way the way that that yeah that's the crisis is the frame yeah, that yeah. was beautiful. I thought that was awesome, actually. I loved the way that the band came back around again uh, in the frame and Orifer being sensitive about that. The one thing that I... Um... Orifer has opinions about Feanorians. <laughs> Orifer has opinions, <laughs> yeah. Totally. Um, the fact... So Thranduil, we're imagining Thranduil... Thranduil's born in the Second Age, right? Do we think? I think so. I, I don't think that we've nailed that down I'm, at this I'm, point i'm vaguely sure. thinking orifer of course is from doriath thranduil is born in the second age and legolas is born in the third age is vaguely what mm-hmm. i'm thinking yeah it's certainly possible um obviously legolas's birthday is never stated by tolkien so we get to put it where we feel like it belongs but he's yeah. at least old and uh, older than aragorn enough to call him a child right exactly okay, so, and to say that 500 years is not a long time to my people and stuff like that. So, yeah, Legolas is probably, you know, a, at least a thousand years old. But that doesn't it still puts him in the third in the middle of the third age and younger no, than no. Arwen. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, like, I, I, where we put his birth is totally yeah. your choice. Yeah. No, and okay, well, uh, obviously we can make a final decision about that says later. That uh, Thranduil was born before first age 507. So he was born sometime in the first age. Uh, it says that the reference for that is something in Unfinished Tales. Hmm. Uh, I can look that up later. Yeah, and it's probably all the stuff it. where the, the, where Orifer comes in. Basically, yeah, I was forgetting that. Um, so one of the reasons I was thinking that was the one problem that the the introduction of the ban into the frame presented to me was why does Thranduil not know? Like, surely he he would know. Right. Well, I, I think, think this is about room. after Thingol's death, the ban isn't really enforced. It doesn't really matter. People just speak whatever language they want. Thranduil and Orifer are going to leave. They aren't going to be around any Noldor after they leave right. Doriath because they're going to go to Mirkwood and set up their realm there. So like, it wouldn't really come up. They would like Thranduil would know that there were issues with Quinya. He may have been present for the second kinsling. He may not have been, but 
he wouldn't really see it as as much of an issue as a warfare, especially when he's going to be for several thousand years surrounded by nobody who speaks Quenya. I, I would say that the the issue isn't that Thrandall doesn't know that the ban was still enforced in Mirkwood, because I'm sure it still is. Like, like now, like right. you know, right. in in the world where the Mirkwood elves are still hanging out right. there now. That band's still enforced. But I would say that Orpher may not have told his son, oh, by the way, I totally stiffed the dwarves on the last payment of uh, on the gates. So, well, But again, the, the, the fact that Thranduil isn't even the one to guess that. I mean, I like the way that he confirms it. But basically, the, so I mean, I, I, I really like the story as it was written. It would make more sense to me as it was written if Thranduil himself. It felt if like Thranduil himself has to be personally distant from it. I mean, if he was mm. around in the first age, he would have been part of that whole culture of the ban firsthand, yeah. right? So it, it, he would have had the same visceral reaction to the gates as Orifer would have. Yeah. So there wouldn't be a mystery. He would be. He would know, and he would be like, you know, from from the get go, he would have been like, yeah, Quenya, idiots, right? Um. So, but. If that's all ancient history to him, I mean, he wouldn't, I mean, as, as happens in the text, he's aware of the story. He knows his dad's hangups about this and the reasons for them, right? But they wouldn't be his hangups. He would, he would follow the band. He would speak only Cinderin, um, out of, you know, respect to his father and to the tradition of their people. But he, it, it wouldn't be relevant to him personally if, if he's even there for the final kinslaying. Um, yeah, we, the way we wrote that, um, definitely makes it seem like Thrandall is first off young enough not to have been present in yes. Doria himself, yes. and secondly, not personally involved in commissioning the gates or building Menegroth or any of that. Yes. So possibly still a child when it happened. Yes, and and not privy to the workman disputes that were going on between his dad and the dwarves. That's kind of exactly what I was thinking. He was abroad. He wasn't in Mirkwood at the time. So like I I assume he was an adult, but he just wasn't present because he was off doing something else in Middle Earth. Possibly. Possibly. But yeah, it just, I think that he has to be, in order for that story in the frame to work, he would, he, he would have to be born in the second age somewhere in the second age, I think. And I don't, I, that seems fine to me. Do we have a job for him? Do we need Thranduil in the first age? I'm not sure we do. Well, we, we can say that he's born in the first and then it will apply to whatever it says. I, I don't know. I don't have my copy of Unfinished Tales on hand, yeah. so I can look it up. But, like, he, he can be born at the tail end of the War of Wrath or something. Yeah, or right after, whatever. Because, yeah, they'll be removed. Anyway, okay, just a little... little Ban related so, so side is, note that, is that a change to make or just something we need to keep in mind when we're telling Thranduil's story? I think we just need to keep that in mind, that we need to make sure okay. that there's a good, compelling reason for him not to be... He just needs to be distant. He can't have the same knee-jerk reaction against a Quenya inscription. Because he's been living with it all these years. You'd think he would have had it fixed if he cared, right? I mean, if it really... like, If he lived through the second or third Kinslayings... Like, he would have done something about the Quenya on his own gates, right? That Bilbo saw and is still there and has been there for thousands of years. Wait. Is. Hang on, I'm confused. I did get the same impression that when Bilbo's like, oh, wait, I think I remember seeing something on the gates. I'm like, 
Maybe the elves who live there have seen the thing on the gates and can tell you what it says. Like, there is that disconnect of yes. why is Bilbo the one? But I, we obviously wanted to um, mirror the part where Bilbo is like, oh, I'm in, I'm so excited about maps and, oh, let me see this, like, the way he is in The Hobbit. So we were trying to get that personality. I like of Bilbo no, I, 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 like I may be misremembering everything, but I, I feel like I recall that the whole issue was that Orifer refused to have the inscription put on his gates. No, that wasn't it. He, the, the, what happened was the dwarves made the gates, they put the inscription on it, and like they get the gates installed, and so they're going to... They're expecting their last of their installment payments, and he doesn't give it to them because he's like, what is this? This is Quenya! They're yeah. mad at them. And I liked it because that gave a... Per- it was an excellent justification for him to refuse the final payment. Um... Like that would be okay. like he'd be like I'm not paying you money for a Quenya inscription. Um, it still doesn't explain why Orifer didn't you know have it taken off and, and but I mean why he decided well, to. They live were with probably it? effective. He's probably more concerned about <laughs> dragons than he right. is about Quenya. Right, right. There were like dragon sightings at the time. He was really really scared. He was like, I've got to have these doors up here, even though they have Quenya on them. <laughs> right. So it was more just a he was he was objecting on principle than than yeah. really uh, any objection with teeth. Right. But it was with enough teeth for him to refuse payment, which seems to right. me, again, that seemed to me to work really well. Whereas if he had just canceled that part of the order, then um, there wouldn't have been a grievance on the dwarf side. Right. Uh, you know, because there has to be, they have to have done work for which they're, they weren't paid in order for there to be the grievance. Um, mm-hmm. anyway okay cool so uh, let's uh, I, I'm not doing a good job of being systematic with episode 10 here um, uh-huh. other issues uh, from get... episode 10 we want to we want to hit on <laughs> um let's well, we see. have the... Oh, that's the dreams we have to talk about the, the dreams. dreams yeah let's talk about the dreams um we did talk about uh the forging of Narsil so that's good um so the holiday trip, right? So they go on their holiday trip and they have their... So let's talk about the dream itself. That was the thing I was most interested in, was the actual depiction of the vision. Um, the own... I, I liked the concept that is showing a sort of... Not super abstract, but uh, a, a, just sort of a series of images and having them draw the clear conclusions from it and feeling that they have had something very specific and concrete communicated to them. That seems fine to me. Um, But the one issue I had with it is that there seems... There seemed like there was a little bit of a mixed metaphor going on. Like we had a wave coming in, and then we had them bursting into flames. And that's what I was confused by. Now, the bursting into flames, I'm not opposed to bursting into flames as a foreshadowing of the Dagger Bregalock, of course. But it felt like I was like, I thought we were going with a like sand castles on the beach and the wave coming in uh, and uh, and, you know, destroying the sand castles. That image of like the leaguer of the Noldor, which they are, 
you know, feeling pretty confident about um, as being like a, a series of sandcastles before the oncoming tide was, I thought, lovely as a message and a very Olmo flavored message. So when the castles like burst into flame, that's when I got confused. Okay, so the bursting into flame isn't destroying the castles. What it does is that they're sandcastles and then the flame happens and they all turn to glass. So it's more of a transformation than a destruction. And then because they are a glass at the point when the wave of blood hits them, that's why they get shattered. But So it's sort of like how the, the dagger Bragalak weakens their defenses and then the near ninth Anordiad completely wipes them out. But glass castles, fragile though they be, are stronger than sand castles. Unless but really glass hot. castles look more dramatic when shattered by a wave that's of blood. That's true. That's true. But that's the problem that I had is because it's again, it felt like yeah. it felt like it was pointing in a couple different directions. Like when they turned to glass, I was like, okay, it's so like if something is like stone and turns to glass, or like steel and turns to glass it's definitely like it has been weakened right mm. but if it's sand and it turns into glass it's been strengthened and so i, I was I like see your yeah. point. was the fire a good yeah. thing was the fire i thought the fire was yeah. a bad thing but i think I, it would be confusing i think and the fire i'm if i'm recalling correctly which i i'm not doing a lot of tonight um <laughs> The fire, I'm thinking, was initially supposed to be a reference to the um, the Battle of Sudden Flame. Yes. Yes. Um, but so I, we were trying to do a couple things with this dream. The first thing we wanted to have was a wave in it because it's like Tolkien's recurring dream yeah, that he had, that. his Atlantis yeah. haunting, where he dreamed yeah. of the giant wave and stuff. And we wanted to play on that. But then, since it's a dream from Olmo, the wave can't really be water because we want water to be a good thing in it. Yep. So we turned it into a wave of blood. Yep. Then, since like the that. dagger Bragalak is coming up, we wanted to have some kind of fire or flame reference that would more directly foreshadow the Battle of Sudden Flame. Perhaps yep. we could have the dream lit by fire or something like that, so that there's still a fire reference without it. Mixing into the metaphor with the sandcastles, we still have the sandcastles destroyed by a wave of blood, but there's these like flickering flames that uh, illuminate the scene of the sandcastle being destroyed by blood. Right. Or Mm. even, I mean, it's a dream, right? So you can shift to another scene within the dream. I mean, that's what happens Mm. in dreams, right? Um, uh, So, or maybe even, I don't know, like, so you're seeing the sandcastles in the foreground and the wave coming up from the background. And then the wave breaks over the sandcastles and the sandcastles are like blown away and smashed into nothing by the wave, which is seen to be a wave of blood. But then like, as the wave breaks up onto the beach, like the, the foam of the wave is flame. So like, it's like a wave of blood, but the foam is flame. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So that we can see like flame licking over the surface of it or flame like pushing in in the, you know, before it or something. But it doesn't actually we don't actually show it acting on the sandcastles like the because I I think the the fundamental image is a really good one. I think it makes sense in all kinds of ways. I love the wave of I love the the reference to Tolkien's wave. I love the wave of blood. That was really cool and creepy. Um, I loved the metaphor of the the the, you know, the 
Noldor castles as sand castles in front of the tide. I loved um, the fact that, like, this is the idiom in which Olmo is speaking, right? That all of that really worked super well together. Um, so that I would definitely pray, even if no fire references made at all, that by itself is good. Um, if fire can be worked into it, cool. Um, but I would definitely not want to sacrifice any element or um, privilege the fire element over any of the rest of that. The rest of that all works super well together, I think. Um, besides which, is, there's even a sense in which him foreshadowing fire might be a little too on the nose for this prophecy, right? Because he's not specifically prophesying the Dagor or Bragalak. He's thinking, Olmo is thinking much bigger picture. Right. Um, the Dagor Bragalak is just going to be the first move of a series of events which is going to lead to the ultimate destruction of Beleriand. That's what Olmo is foreseeing, right? Um, so, in some ways, maybe taking the fire out is even better because then it doesn't... We don't want people to feel that once the Dagor Bragalak has happened, the event foretold by Olmo is done. Like, that, that's, that, that has occurred, right? Um because it's bigger than that. Um, otherwise, when the Dagor Bragalak happens, but of course, like, Hithlum is still good, right? And Himling is still good. And, you know, like, you know, Dorthonian is going to be destroyed and orcs are going to, you know, and, and uh, Minas Tirith is going to get taken. Um, but still, you know, a, a significant percentage of the strong places of the Noldor remain. Uh, and so... It could look like if, again, if the dream is interpreted by the audience as merely a foretelling of the Dagor Bragalak, it could look like a false prophecy, right? right? Or like, right. well, I guess uh, Turgon overreacted, right? Gondolin wasn't really necessary after all. He'd have well, been fine if it stayed in Neverhouse. <laughs> so anyway, just, uh, just I, I think that uh, de-emphasizing the fire might actually be a good thing, really. Yeah. All right. Yeah, a I think it can still be present, but it doesn't need to be as big of a thing as it is now. No, yeah, it certainly yeah. can be can be just a touch or even, as you say, Marie, kind of a background issue. Like, just the fact that it's being seen by the flickering light of a fire, right, could be enough. Or, right? or even if it's the like, distant horizon and the source of the wave, because that's what I had happen to Ethelos when she had the spell of bottomless dread put on her, where she saw, like, this line of fire on the horizon, which mm-hmm. I want to be parallel to a shot that will see in the dagger bridalog of a line of fire on the sure. horizon. Sure. Yeah, yeah. That kind of a direct parallel would be fun, I think. Um, I wanted to real quick just bring up, uh, just to go back a tiny bit uh, and bring up uh, some of the stuff from when the the Feanorians are in Himring and kind of like working out, like, what, what do we do now? Because right. we were awesome, but like there was a lot of distinct... <laughs> Unawesomeness going right. around. Right. Over the rest there. of the Noldor were like B minus at best, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. <laughs> um, and Morgoth doesn't grade on a curve, so we got to figure this out. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Kelagorm obviously is like, well, who? I mean, are we caring? Like, are right. we caring about this? Like, if they get wiped out, like, they haven't exactly been. Staunch allies of ours, <laughs> right? <laughs> are, are we significantly worse off without them? Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, Corfin, well, of course, out and they're like bashing the Sindar, making fun of the Sindar because they, right. they are mad about the band. So that's another way we're bringing the band in. Yes. Yeah. And then they start talking about how awesome they themselves were, and they're like, yeah, and also the other Noldor were there. 
too. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Feanorian right. pride is on full display in this episode. Yes, yes. <laughs> Definitely. And we had somewhat justified. <laughs> yes. They're not completely wrong. Corfin suggesting this idea of having his like the brothers separate and go out as like emissaries to like help the other kingdoms kind of uplift their military preparedness. <laughs> and it like of course he would do that. Of, of course, course that's his idea. Yeah. You know, because obviously he's going to try to take over wherever he's at. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um puts the kibosh on that real quick. Yeah, but I, that was I did like that, and of course that as a little like tiny little foreshadowing of Nargothrond as well uh, right. was nice. Yeah. yeah, no, that was good. Yeah. I, I I liked I liked all that stuff. Um, um, yeah, we bring in the idea of Turgon as um, architect, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. essentially having inherited his uh, his grandfather's skill of architecture, which was. Right kind of Finway's gift that we gave him. Yes. Um, we did some stuff with Arathel and Idril to get set for um, their relationship being part of the motivation for Arathel to go to Gondolin. Yep. Yes, this episode does pass the Bechdel test. Yes. <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> yes, it did. Um. Two women talking about sculpture. Yes, that was good. Yeah, and I really and like... the hope of their people, and you know things like that. Yeah, yeah. And I really like the fact that, like, things like that have happened very naturally without us really having to. Yeah. Like, despite the fact that, yeah, there's a lot of dudes in this show. Like, that's true. But, like, we're not really trying that hard to push back against that and yet there's still scenes like that yeah. which i really like I, the, you know the friendship that has grown in this season between luthien and galadriel has had yeah. that effect too yeah i i do feel that um uh yeah i i like the way in which we are and again as you say not just trying to force it and being like look we're trying to give women more screen time um but just kind of naturally exploring what is the role of women in Noldor society and how, how, you know, what do they do? How do they interact? How do the, how do men and women, um, you know, how are the roles of men and women, uh, you know, re- related and, and, and worked out in Noldor society? You know, we thought a lot about that and um, it, it has led to, I think some really, some really good and interesting and natural uh uh, scenes and characterization. Um, is there anything that, cause we already kind of talked about the dreams. Is there anything else we want to talk about for episode 10 here? Well, we did have a very relevant discussion when we were planning this episode about what kinds of pajamas Finrod and Turgon were wearing. Oh, good grief. <laughs> pajama. The great pajama debate of 2019. Yeah. <laughs> Since See, they're on a trip together and they're they're having the same dream, it just came up naturally. It, yeah. And so of course we designed in episode nine because we were talking about how Turgon was having his dream that made him go away from the battle, and I suggested that Turgon's pajamas should have hearts and suns and moons on them. 
just like his heraldry. And then Aquilian's pajamas have fountains on them, and Goldfinger's pajamas oh, have gosh. golden flowers on them. And then Agalmuth has like rainbow striped pajamas, and Duelin has golden pajamas. Definitely goes commando. No question about that. Wait, who does? <laughs> In, in your in, my guy, no. my main in, man. <laughs> Trish, in your dreams. <laughs> uh, Tr- Trish, I think you will be happy to see some of the choices that um, for the casting for Glorfindel. Um, oh yeah, ha- I'm excited. Ha- Hakon made sure that the nominating criteria was he has to be a good-looking dude. <laughs> <laughs> Must be pretty. Glorfindel equals. He must be Trisha's type. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, whether or not it meets your exacting standards will be another (laughs) issue entirely. You can leave that up to you to figure out. But I just wanted you to know that he at least put it out there that that was one of the things we should be looking for. We are not not casting a homely Glorfindel. That that will not. That's right. That's right. Right. <laughs> but we had to decide else. what kind of pajamas Finrod was wearing. You know, it's see, talk about questions that I never asked myself. There there's there's an, yet another one that Film Film has brought up. What do elves sleep in? Well, Nick's suggestion was that since the pe- people, the Lords of Gondolin, will have pajamas based on the heraldry of their houses. Finrod should have pajamas based on the green bar here that he has. <laughs> Did we definitely so decide that? Somebody definitely a- decided <laughs> that. And that's what Finrod wears. Okay. So basically, yeah. we put Finrod in a, a footed PJs <laughs> with little snake hands and a hood, and it was it was very adorable. <laughs> I was Somebody wondering. may have drawn this. A onesie. Yes, I did draw this. I mean, Finrod in a onesie. I yeah, like it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Footed PJs. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> good. Good. Hey, you so know what I would love to do? They're on the discussion forum. Yeah, I'm glad this was this 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 important and sensitive subject was handled. Uh, anyway. So Finrod is the one who wears footed pajamas. I mean, sure. Why not? Yeah. Okay. And and the, they have little mittens with snake faces on them. <laughs> I can see and, it. And they have flowers on them. And one of the snake mittens is devouring flowers, and the other <laughs> one has a crown of flowers. <laughs> Hopefully his hands don't devour each other, right? That would be awkward. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Well, that's good. Every I... season has presented its own challenges to me yeah. in the script discussions. That's all I'm going to say. And, and Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. I understand. Well, let's talk about episode 11. So That would be so awesome. We've hit on uh, some of the major themes from this. We talked about the ban. Um, so one question. So we've got – so Finrod and Turgon are beginning their quests to make their strongholds here. Um, Turgon is going to – so Turgon's story I thought was – that was fairly – Simple, and I liked yeah. how that worked out. I I, I don't know. It's a road any... movie. Yeah, that was all fairly clear, and uh, um, I kind of liked how he. Um, the, I mean, the 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 line where he was like, "Well, we don't have to worry about the spies of Morgoth figuring out where we're going because we have no idea." Um, <laughs> but um, uh, the you know the meeting with Thorondor um, upon Amon Gwareth seemed you know that was like nice and climactic and and. Uh, uh, I, 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 
like that a lot. So I, I, I have no, um, um, no sort of questions about the Turgon uh, subplot there. Every time we talk about somebody meeting Thorin, or I keep hearing Aslan in the back of my head going, "Yes, more magic," <laughs> in a much yes. more booming voice than that. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, so the Finrod story, the one major question I had about Finrod going to Thingol for assistance, I didn't have any questions about him doing that. The question that I had was, so on the one hand, I understand why Thingol makes such a big deal of it because he's still mad at Finrod. And I get that. And like, that's fine. Like you would be. Right. But at the same time, he's kind of make like it. I felt he came off sounding a little petty, honestly, because like Finrod, <laughs> and I, 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 I found myself wanting Finrod to say something like, dude, don't do me any favor. I just asked you if you happen to know of a cave. Okay. I didn't expect <laughs> the kind of Spanish inquisition, right? Like, I mean, he's not asking much, right? I mean, this is not, do a you know where thing. there's a cave or do you not know where there's <laughs> exactly. a cave? It's like, I'll go ask somebody else. It's no big deal. Finding a cave. It's permission to dwell in the lands that Thingol is technically the king of. In which case you see that makes Thingol sound even pettier. Right, because well, Finrod is going out of his way to treat Thingol as Thingol is asked to be treated. Right, so you know, like the the it's a yeah. Sorry, I, I'm sorry. No, it's I'm okay. Sorry. Go it's okay. Um, it's a bit more than that, though, because Finrod is the only one who winds up living in like southern Beleriand. Yes. Like nobody oh, else comes down below. I'm rough. Oh yeah, but that I mean, he doesn't like, like we've he's living in a yurt, like it's not the same. is a wandering guy; he's not building a kingdom. Exactly, right. exactly. Right. It's not, it's not the same thing. He's living and, in a yurt. Like Amras probably doesn't. He, he is actually living in a yurt. You'll see that right. in episode twelve. I love it. I love it. Uh, well, I thought you might actually. Um, <laughs> Like, I'm so he, he glad I kept him alive so that he could go on to live in a yurt. <laughs> You're welcome. That, that is its own. That is its own justification. Sorry. Go ahead. So what we should have done is had Angrod live in a yurt. <laughs> See, anyway, he doesn't even need so. Go ahead, so sorry, what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that Finrod's getting a lot closer to him yeah. than anybody else really is. So, like. It's it's a bit more that because this isn't part of the lands that Thingol originally because everybody else so far has stayed in the areas that Thingol was like yep that you can stay all up there that's fine. Now he's asking for more than that, which I think is kind of a bigger part of the issue. And maybe if we brought that out in dialogue, that might help a little bit. Maybe uh, maybe a little bit more. Um, but I mean, okay, it's still like it's not like he's asking to live in Doriath, you know. Like it's outside and, the girdle still. And I know, like Thingol claims all and, this land. No, but Thingol is being petty here. I think yeah. that's a fair assessment of his reaction. And this is not the first time or the last time that Thingol is going to have <laughs> a fairly petty reaction to something. Right, he's, that's true. He's someone who's easily aggrieved. Right. And when he's aggrieved, he lets you know. Like yeah. he, he isn't someone who processes his anger and makes mature choices without a lot of help from those around him. Like yeah. Million doesn't let him access his Twitter account that often. 
<laughs> just saying. Right. Right. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So, Nick, but coming back to the Southern Kingdom thing. See, one of the reasons that didn't come up much in dialogue is that Finrod, he's not like hell bent on making a kingdom in the South. Right. I mean, yeah. he doesn't know the location of the cave. I mean, you know, it's like, do you know any convenient, you know, untenanted caves that I could live in? You know, yeah. um, and uh, it does end up being in the South, but it doesn't have to be right. I mean, it could I, be anywhere. Well, so the kind of the my operating premise for Gondolin and Nargothon have been that Gondolin is kind of like an arc. Right. Right. It like just Yep. Bottles elvish culture and drops it somewhere safe. Yes. Nargothron is more of a sanctuary. Yes. It, it's like it's a fallback position. It's a place where it, it's very welcoming. People can come there. But it's someplace relatively safe. And I think that because of its role, it kind of does have to be somewhere further away from yes. Angban. Yes. So I, I think that he would ask he would have to actually ask for it to be someplace in the safe place where Doria is. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. And, you know, so maybe it's okay. I mean, that, so that could be emphasized a little bit more though. Maria's right. Like if he, if he looks petty, it's not a huge deal. Um, especially since, I mean, everybody at his court is gently not siding with him, right? I mean, Melian is kind of like, let's think this through. And Dairon, for crying out loud, little Dairon is speaking up against him, um, right? Not yeah. against him, but, you know, pointing yeah. out that he's being petty. And um, and Celeborn, of course, is, uh, is you know, so, I mean, everybody is essentially not quite ganging up, but almost ganging up on Thingol during this episode. Um, but, um, uh, I mean, goodness, Celeborn practically tries to, like, take one for the team and, like, draw Thingol's ire onto himself. Uh, you mm. know, it kind of feels like he's doing, he's doing Finrod a solid there, you know, to... Yeah. Uh, to uh, he's being the social tank. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, and again, it just it didn't. F- so maybe if Thingol made a bigger deal of the political situation, but again, it's going to be hard for him to do that without sounding petty too, because yeah, it is going to be petty. I mean, uh, it it is nothing but there is there is no downside. There is no possible downside for Thingol, for Finrod to establish a strong kingdom nearby. Um, Unless but, he can't what, trust him. What, what Thingol is really concerned about is how personally betrayed he feels by Finrod. Right. Because it was Thingol's brother that was killed in the Kinsling. It was his niece that was killed in the Kinsling. Yep. And Finrod covered this up. Right. And that all makes sense. I guess that's that's what made made it feel kind of petty because Finrod is, you know, he's, you know, when Thingol has that, like, you know, you concealed this to me, you betrayed me personally, and now you come asking for my help. Like, that's his whole line, right? Um, And except the, like, now you come asking for my help betrays the fact that Thingol is missing the point. Like, 
yet he's come to you because like out of respect, like it's not in fact a further grievance. Like the fact that he tries to depict that as a further grievance, just like broadcasts how petty he's being because it's not a further grievance. It is, uh, it's the opposite. It's, it's a sign of respect. It's, it's a, it should, his coming to Thingle should be a mitigating factor for what he did before rather than the opposite. Well, and what's interesting is that anytime that Thingol like pushes back against the Noldor at all, it is kind of petty because he can't really like he can't. It's 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 so it's almost cowardly in a way because he yes. can't actually get into open conflict with them. Yes. Yeah. You know, he, so he, he takes all these little opportunities, them, but they he, can't attack him either because he's safe. right. 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 Yeah. So he uses all these little ways in which he does have power over them to get one in on them. Yeah. You know, it's it's not a good look. There's no there's no, no. doubt. And yeah. I think it's okay for us to be going down this road for him because it's only going to be he's we're not going to see Doriath that much next season, I think. And I mean, I think we'll see them, but not a ton. Yeah, no, I agree with the Goadro and Kelborn situation and with them also out on their honeymoon, their extended honeymoon, right? Um, well, right. we will have Thingol's reaction to Min right. coming to Beleriand, which is uh, he doesn't want any of them. Kick them out. Kick them out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. in the force of Brethel, right. and <laughs> he appreciates reaction is, well, there goes the neighborhood, right? There were men. Yeah. 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 So but, we'll have his reaction. We'll have a few things, but he's not interacting with the men. So therefore, the Doriath storyline is definitely way back burner in season right. five and right. then we have Brennan Luthien where it comes back to the force so we do need to have Thingle at the end of this season pretty much where we want him when Baron when Baron shows up yeah when Baron crosses right. into yeah right to, to Luthien yeah and, so we yeah. need to kind of get him there and I think that like all of these like the betrayal on top of betrayal on top of betrayal is kind of and we're setting him up to be that person right but we're not just going to leave him here because we're going to have the wedding Right, and things right. will be better at the wedding. So, um, right. but we've given glimpses of this. So, yeah, no, I think it. I think it. I think it works. Um, um, but I do agree. This is not a good look for him. This is not a good look for him. He, he does not. His dialogue yeah. sounds make him sound a little bit more sympathetic. Like he can sound less angry and more hurt in some mm-hmm. places, mm-hmm. and really like talk about why he feels it's important that he doesn't do this for Fenua because of how betrayed he feels. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, he can bring up specifically his brother and how much he loved his brother and, like, the separation from his brother and then just learning that his brother had died sort of accidentally and very indirectly, right. like, through through Bethel in disguise, through Kirden, and then through Angrod, who yells it out. Yep. Uh, okay. Um, so and we don't want to say a thing is a very emotional person who right. feels things deeply. So right. the hurt would be something he's right. not processing well. Right. Well, since Angon is alive now, we could have him come visit Doriath too. We could. We could do another. Would would we'll probably. I mean, we'll want to visit more than once. I think during season five. But I agree, it's not going to have a major role in the story. Um, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, okay. Let's talk about Gladro and Kelborn then, and then I think we're good for episode eleven. Um, th- uh, Gladro 
and Caliborn cooking together was so precious. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, uh, and the fact that like Caliborn is a really good cook, I kind of loved that actually. Um, uh, yeah, I just, I, I thought that was, I thought that was kind of fun. Um, I the one thing I was uncertain about was so the we've made it pretty clear that Celeborn knows where this is heading <laughs> right Celeborn's <laughs> definitely got his mind made up right now and he's being patient right because you know he has been a friend of Galadriel and he knows she's been emotionally vulnerable and he doesn't want to take advantage of her and you know and all that you know so he's you know, being circumspect in his uh, wooing of Galadriel. Um, it's so it's definitely a question. It has definitely seemed to be a question more of, you know, Galadriel knowing her heart, you know, like Eowyn in the Houses of Healing um, uh, more than it is of Celeborn, which seems to me fine. That seems to me perfectly appropriate. Um and fitting that was the element that I felt I didn't I thought that from Celeborn's perspective the engagement worked really well with Galadriel seems to have a moment of decision but I felt like that got buried a little bit I mean she has the moment when she like says yes, but she comes to that meeting with a ring. She's already made her decision. Um, so I, I, I guess I, I felt a little bit like her making the decision needed to be a bigger moment. What do you guys so think? You didn't want it to be a surprise that she was going to say yes. No, no, I, no, right. not exactly. No, I, I didn't want her to be like, oh, Celeborn, this is so sudden, right? No, that's not what I was wanting. Right. But I don't know. Um, well, I think that, like the engagement scene is they both definitely want to get engaged, yeah. but they're both unsure about the view of the other one. Which is fine. It's when did Galadriel become sure that she wanted to marry Kelborn? How long has she known that? Yeah, because it is kind of like it. it Apparently, seems long happen. enough to request Finrod to pick up a ring for her. So, yes, exactly. <laughs> Finrod pick up the ring. Finrod gave her the ring that he was going to give to his girlfriend before they left Valinor, and that comes up in episode thirteen. So, it, it isn't a ring that Galadriel requested Finrod get for her. It's a ring that Finrod had with him and was like. Galadriel was going to need this before I need it, and gave it to her. Could we give them a scene? Yeah, but the two of them, Finrod and Galadriel. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I don't know. To be honest, I'm pretty we sure could, we didn't. Like, I mean, yeah, they're they're at the party, and and he just, the and, guys and, are like standing around talking about the women. He's <laughs> like, yeah, he, he just kind of hands it to her, and she's like, yeah. you know, she she like takes the hand off, but they don't have a moment, right? I mean, I I, I oh. felt like so. Can, Especially since just okay, which one last thing here. I feel like I feel like there's a lot of pressure on this, especially given that Galadriel and Celeborn's relationship is going to be and going to become famously one-sided appearing. 
right? I mean, everybody knows. Like, the fact that Celeborn made out in this relation, <laughs> this exchange, is going to be obvious, you know, all the way through what the man Lord of the Rings. doesn't? Right? Let's be real. But what? Wait, what? And said, what man doesn't? Let's right, be real. Exactly. And it's all good. That's all fine. Like that he's going to be spending the next several millennia counting his lucky stars that she deigned to marry him. Right. Um, but there's a lot of pressure, therefore, on her decision to marry him. Right. One of the goals, one of the overall plans of the Galadriel and Celeborn romance through season four, when we were conceiving of it at the beginning of the season, was we wanted to have this make sense. Um, why is it, what is it that Galadriel sees in Celeborn? We don't want her to be seen to be settling when she marries Celeborn. Um, and I think we've set that up. So I'm just saying, this is why I think there's a lot of pressure, not in the moment when she says yes to him, but on the moment when she decides this is what she wants. And I don't, when we haven't had that. And I, I think it needs to happen I, on screen. I see, what, I see what you're missing. And um, I'm not sure where to fit that in this episode. Me neither. I, I know, I'm not saying we shouldn't I, do it. I'm just I'm a little stuck. Celeborn was, was the protagonist of this episode because it's all about yeah. him betraying Thingol's trust and revealing that he knew about the kinslaying earlier because he did that for Galadriel. So, I mean, maybe we could make something bigger of, like, when they're talking and, like, she's like, why did you do this? He already knew. And he's like, I did it for you and your brother. Like, just the way he's acting in her interest. And then he doesn't say that he learned it like, he doesn't say to Thingol that he learned about the kinsling from Gladiol, so he's still trying to protect her. Mm-hmm. So it, that could be when Gladiol sort of sees in him that, like, he's the person she wants. Um, there's also, a, there is a scene early in the episode um, between Galadriel and Finrod where they they have... They're having a conversation, and Galadriel is talking about how she's concerned that she's not going to be able to stay in in Doriath much longer. And I feel like it's very possible that by now that Finrod has observed that there might be a reason why Galadriel's been hanging out in Doriath for this much. Especially since Finrod Finrod is very perceptive, right? I mean – he is. I mean, this of course comes out very clearly in the Athrobath. Yeah. Um, yeah. He is very sensitive to people. So, I mean, he, he's one of the people who's really good at telepathy, right? Because yeah. he's really good at reading the hearts and minds of people. Um, and this is his sister. For and this is his sister. Yeah. And yeah. and you know something that needs to be said. I think it needs to be said explicitly, and maybe even addressed explicitly by Galadriel. It looks like she's marrying down and everyone's going to wonder about this. Like everyone, I mean, she went away, right? Um, And she's barely spent any time with the rest of the Noldor this entire season. It's been now hundreds of years since she spent time with the Noldor. And the last, the rest of them saw her. I mean, Angrod and Finrod have been visiting um, and she went to the Marathatarthad. So it's not like she's totally not been seen by anybody, but, um, but, the last anybody saw of her, she was still like the ambitious. She was the one who was like beginning to rival Fingolfin, 
right? Yeah. I mean, she yeah. was putting herself out there as a rival leader, um, you know, to her, her uncle. And so, and now everyone's going to hear like she'd like married some dude. She went native. Yeah, she went native in like with the Sindar. Yeah. She married this yeah. dark elf, and everyone's going to be like, what the heck? What's going on? And Finrod yeah. isn't going to, I mean, he is familiar enough with them, with Celeborn and with her to sort of see this. He's ready to understand, but it, he might still ask the question, you know, like, yeah. Galadriel, this doesn't seem like you. Like, why are you, why, and he wouldn't say it in these terms, but basically, like, why are you settling? Why are you now just like setting up house in, in, you know, in the court in Doriath and ignoring the rest of the world and marrying this guy who barely right. leaves the woods and i mean what's going on here yeah he's well, gonna be the family like member that. expressing concern about where this relationship is headed and what it's doing to her <laughs> exactly. and he's and in the position to do it so yeah. yeah 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 exactly. also she yeah well i just want to say i don't think that finrod would be the one who would like not want Galadriel to marry Celeborn or be questioning that, he would see that if they love each other, then they should be together. So maybe he could do something like when Galadriel is talking about how she's like uncertain, she feels that her welcome in Doriath is coming to an end, he could ask her, well, why have you stayed? And then sort of the thing left unsaid would be that she stayed because she likes Celeborn. Yeah. But that's the thing is that as her older brother... Like, yeah, he gets that she likes him, but he's concerned about what this is doing to her and if it's a good thing or a bad thing in her life. And like, where, and he only visits occasionally. So, yeah, what, where's this going and what's the point here? And and this yeah. isn't quite the same person that he's known all his life. Like, they've known each other a very, very long time, and she's acting quite uncharacteristically in a number of ways. So I could see him at least being concerned in that respect. Right. I don't think it bothers him that she's no. marrying Caliborn per no. se. no. Um, and um, and I, I would think that that part of the conversation could even he could he doesn't have to be himself super worried, but he could articulate. He could say things like, "Many of our kinsmen in the north would ask this. You know, what would you say? Yeah. What should what would you have me say? What what, what do I say? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like in episode twelve, Arthur and talking about the fact that Galadriel is marrying Celeborn and really wow, that's someone that Galadriel is settling for. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's it's. It, it, I mean, it's totally is going to be an issue. Um, so. But having her, I mean, I, the the main point though of bringing it up, and again, Finrod would absolutely do this in a really sensitive and empathetic way. But the main reason to bring it up is that I want her to answer it. You know, what I mean, right. I, I right. want to hear her answer about how this is not settling and how this is part of. Uh, and Marie, getting back to you know what you were saying about like what direction is her life taking exactly? That's what he wants to know, right? Um, to have her articulate that, like how is it, um, and even as a way of showing how the engagement is in fact a step forward and a step for like she has needed Celeborn. Because she was wounded, right? She mm. was wounded. She needed him. He was helpful to her. He was a shoulder to cry on, and he was someone who was willing to listen. He showed trust to her when she didn't even trust herself. Um, respect for her when she was having a hard time respecting herself. You know, all of these things. It, that was great. But that's not an awesome... Like, if that's the whole basis of their relationship, that's not 
very good, right? This not, yeah. you know, so we need to show for the sake of seeing where Galadriel is headed for the next several seasons, you know, for this next, mm-hmm. you know, stretch of the story, but also for the much longer term question of what is the marriage, not the initial relationship, but the marriage right. of Galadriel and Celeborn founded upon what's her vision. She should have a yeah. vision, right. Of like what she wants to do with the rest of her life and how marrying Celeborn is a part of that. Yes. Story. That. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously her answer can't just be that he's an easy guy to boss around. <laughs> You're right, right, exactly. Yeah. Where else am I going to find someone this tractable? I, I've been seeing some very <laughs> unpleasant things said about Celeborn recently. It made my blood boil a little bit. Um, yeah. Especially knowing, yeah, I'm you with know. you, Nick. I don't think he's the guy that people make him out to be. No, it's yeah, easy it, to make jokes about it. He's an easy target. Yeah. But yes, I agree. Um, but yeah, this is our opportunity to, like, Galadriel express what she sees in the guy yes and right, if she right. can't tell us that then we've obviously dropped the ball somewhere we've got a problem. Yeah, exactly. know. <laughs> yeah well the um, one thing i'd be concerned about doing it is having it that early in the episode because like part of the story of the episode is gladwell being uncertain like when they have the cute I agree, moment when later. together she is a little bit concerned realizing just how intimate they've gotten yes so if you think they have a conversation like that with finrod it might should happen later in the episode or after at the that feast. or after you at the feast. feast or something at like the that feast. yeah, yeah. yeah. At the feast and so by the way this uh the ring here's my suggestion about the ring the culmination of this conversation with Galadriel can be him taking the, cause he's wearing the ring around his neck on a chain. I'm thinking. Yes. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. He takes I love it, it out cause he's got it on him. How he always has it on him. He takes it out and he gives it to her. And this is like the physical sign of his, like conferring his, his blessing, blessing upon it. as, right, yeah. as the stand in for her father. Yeah. 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 Um, and I, I don't think that we thought about this at the time, but Finrod is in a lot of ways, kind of like a, the anti-parallel to Sauron. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously Luthien as well, but Finrod um, in some very, very direct ways. Yep. Like he has, people feel about Finrod the way Sauron would kind of like people to feel about <laughs> him, right? And Everybody Finrod, loves Finrod. Everybody loves Finrod, yeah, exactly. And Finrod gives a ring to Galadriel, yeah. which just... <laughs> that's that's yeah. cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yep, yep, yep. I had a little chill when I was reading it like a few minutes ago, and I don't remember us even thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't think of it then. Yeah. No, I think that's really great. And having him take the ring out, you know, from around his neck, you know, from under his clothes and around his neck gives him an opportunity to give a 30-second reminder of, like, yeah. the fiancé that he didn't come with him, you know? Well, so. yeah, that's Actually, the way I did that in episode 13 is it's not something they talk about. I did it in a flashback because right. th- there's pad in that episode, the scene where Galadriel was talking to Finrod and she's like, well, why don't you marry? You're, you're really good. You should marry somebody. And like he says that he's going to swear an oath and that he won't have a son to inherit his kingdom. 
And then, like, what the Silmarillion says is that, but he didn't say what he really was thinking, which was that his girlfriend was back in Valinor and he really missed Marie and he wished that uh, in his heart he was really they could married. be together. But yeah. he doesn't say that to Galadriel, and Galadriel doesn't pick up on it. So I don't think in this scene where he gives her the ring, he should be talking about his girlfriend. I think he should just be giving her a ring and then the fact that it was the ring that he was planning to use okay. as his engagement ring will come up in episode 13. She's sure well, going to give him a quizzical look about where he got the ring and why he happens to yeah, have one on. Handy. But um, I think that, that this could actually work with that, though, because if, yeah. in episode 13, she's like, hey, Fenrad, aren't you ready to move on and find a new girl here in Beleriand where everyone is happy and in love like me? Um, <laughs> yeah. Then that it sounds a little clueless, but it'll be less clueless if he just gave away the ring that he was saving for his girlfriend in Valinor, mm-hmm. because when Finrod hands that over, like, well, this was meant for Amare, but obviously I'm never going to give it to her. So why don't you take it? Seems like you might have a use for it. Galadriel can take that as Finrod's let go. Of the move on. Yeah. Right. He's moving on. Right. So, so he, so she thinks she's making a, a fun joke or a, like just a friendly, like, it's okay. We can talk about this now. And right. Finrod's like, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's never happening. Um, I will never marry right. my heart. You know, like Galadriel doesn't understand that about Finrod, but yeah. if he, he could, he could mention in passing something about Amarie when he hands the ring over about him not needing it, that she could take the wrong way. Right, and then, oh, and then that makes can... more sense than Galadriel being like completely clueless that Fingon had a girlfriend when they were in Valinor because she yeah. would have known her, surely. Yeah, uh, right, right. They were both at the party when the trees got darkened. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Okay, good. All right, so um, that's let's leave it there. Then we'll come back and we'll do episode twelve and thirteen next time. Before mm-hmm. we begin twelve and thirteen, though. I will want to come back. I will want to talk about the answer to the question. Galadriel's answer to the question. What is, why is she marrying Celeborn? So we don't yeah. have to come up with that answer tonight, but we'll talk about that before we get to 12 and 13 next time. And then we'll do 12 and 13. All right. Fantastic. Excellent. Good. Very good. Thanks everybody. So one, uh, so two quick reminders uh, before we close. One is that our next session is next week. Um, our uh, every other week schedule has been kind of blasted <laughs> for the last couple months. <laughs> We've been doing like two weeks in a row and then skipping three weeks constantly. But anyway, here it is again, because uh, we're coming up towards the holiday season. So we're going to have our next session on December 12th, uh, in which we're going to complete our discussion of the um, uh, of the of the scripts Um and uh, Marie, I see in your text here, you were not confident that we would get through <laughs> episode 11. <laughs> but anyway, it's all good because um, we will come back to 11 as well. So anyway, so we'll finish the discussion of the scripts. But don't forget, voting for casting is now in progress. So go to uh, the casting forum and uh, cast your votes. Uh, this is a direct link here. Um, but you can uh, you can find it in the discussion forums um and uh and uh vote for uh vote for folks so vote for the the your actors of choice to choose our roles make sure that uh uh Trish gets a sufficiently hot gorfindel that's 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 going to be that's going to be crucial here so um 
All right. And um, uh, voting will remain open through Christmas. I think will remain open said. through Christmas. Excellent. Yeah. So we'll remind you again next time. Very good. Okay. Excellent. Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks for the discussion here tonight. Thanks, of course, uh, to our uh, script team guests, as always, uh, Marie and Nick and Rihanna. Appreciate all the work that you've been doing and your uh, joining us tonight again. Thank you so much for having us. No Indeed. Yeah, thank you. And we look forward to uh, one more discussion with you guys next week uh, on this stuff. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And I will say, as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed. Mm-hmm.